0: Good morning, Harbor Community Church. You know, first and foremost, I want to say Happy Easter to you all. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our faith is futile. Um, Essentially, we're a bunch of idiots for gathering and worshiping Jesus. But the reality is, is that Christ has been risen and that we serve a risen King who's provided us with an eternal hope. And so therefore, we have been set free from our sins and we have been set free from the bondage of sin and death and our faith is not worthless Um, and so we have to celebrate this and we want to celebrate this but for us as the church the hero is not the easter bunny the purpose of easter is not to paint and hide eggs The hero of Easter is Jesus, and the purpose of this Sunday is to reflect on and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so I hope and pray that today will be a blessing to you as you do just that. But I just want to give you guys a reminder before we dive into God's Word, and that reminder is this, is that obviously we're not able to gather corporately today as the the church. Um, We are watching this online, streaming this online, and so we're going to designate that first Sunday back as a, as a day that we will celebrate the resurrection of Jesus corporately as the church. And so this is going to be a glorious time of fellowship and of worship. We're going to sing together, study God's Word together, take communion together, and we're going to celebrate baptisms of new believers. It's going to be a glorious time. I can't wait for this first Sunday that we will be able to gather together as the church. But with that being said, we have the opportunity to continue to work our way through the Gospel of John today. So, if you would turn in your Bibles to John chapter thirteen, this uh, this week's passage is is a little lengthy in the number of verses that are there. And last week's passage was a smaller ish passage, but it was packed full of a lot of complex theological truths that we really had to wrestle through. Um, But although this week's passage is a little more lengthy in the number of verses that are found in it, it's really straightforward and it's packed full of a lot of application for us as the church. Um, So we're going to, as we're wrestling through this passage, we're going to see two things really stand out. First, we're going to see more foreshadowing to the cross in the actions of Jesus. And so all throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus has taken physical truths to communicate spiritual truths or physical realities to communicate spiritual truths. So you see him feed the crowd with bread and then him transition into saying that he is the bread of life. You see him standing next to large lampstands and him proclaiming to the crowd that he is the the light of the world. You see all of Jesus using all of these metaphors of who he is and what he's come to accomplish. So we're going to see yet another example of Jesus foreshadowing and pointing to the cross. But then we're also going to see a lot of day-to-day application for us as believers. So we talk often about, as a church, how we should live with a gospel-centered mentality, and as we do that, as we talk about that, we always feel that it's important to ask the question of okay, what does that practically mean for us? And it, what that means is that we want every aspect of our lives as believers of Jesus to reflect the gospel of Jesus. But then we have to go a little bit deeper in asking the question of okay, well, what is the gospel? And the gospel is this, is simply the good news that Jesus Christ gave himself up freely, laid his life down, died for his church so that he may present the church holy and blameless to himself without spot or blemish. So where we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Jesus died so that we might be forgiven and cleansed through belief in Jesus. Therefore, as Christians, as the church, we surrender every aspect of our life to Jesus in order to bring praise and honor and glory to Jesus. We want every aspect of our lives to reflect the love that Christ has shown for us on the cross. Well, our passage today gives us practical ex- a, a practical example of what that should look like. So because of the length of our passage, what, rather than read the whole thing, and then go back and begin to unpack it, what we're simply going to do is we're going to kind of read it verse by verse, chunk by chunk, and begin to unpack it as we go. But as you can tell by the title of this chapter, the title of this pericope, Jesus is going to wash His disciples' feet. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. My prayer is that this will will be um, eye-opening for us, but it won't just be eye-opening for us intellectually, but practically we will begin to live out what we see here. So let's start by reading verse one. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So the first thing that we see here is that John reminds us of two things. First, he reminds us of the, of the timing of all of this, and then he reminds us of the magnitude of his love for his disciples. So we're reminded that Passover is at hand. The feast of Passover is at hand. I'm not sure if you understand this or not, but that's right now. That's what's going on right now. It's being celebrated as we speak. The Passover actually started last week, And it's going to last until next Thursday. And so this is a time that celebrated how God set Israel free from slavery in Egypt through the bloodshed of the spotless land. This is something that we've talked about fairly often throughout the past few chapters of the Gospel of John. But we also see that the time of Jesus's death is here. This is another redundant point that we've seen consistently throughout the past few chapters. The hour has come for Jesus. Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world and go to the Father. Um, And so that's a a point that we need to um, take heed to as we work our way through this. Jesus is getting ready to die as the spotless lamb of God on the cross. And he knows this. He's fully aware of his pending death. He doesn't just have a feeling that things are going to go south in the next few days. He knows that his time to die has arrived. And what he chooses to do at this moment is truly remarkable. He doesn't choose to go skydiving. He doesn't choose to go swim with sharks or swim with dolphins. He doesn't try to go scratch off everything on his bucket list. In preparation for his death on the cross, he retracts from the crowd and begins to selflessly display his love for his disciples. And one way that he does that is through the washing of his disciples' feet. But what's really interesting. Here in John chapter 13, is that before John begins to describe this moment, he tells us two more important details. First, or let's read these verses two through four. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. So John felt that it was important to tell us that before Jesus washed his disciples' feet, Judas, one of his disciples, had already begun to plan his betrayal. So the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray him. So that tells us that the enemy's plan to attack Jesus is in full swing. It's in full motion. It has been set in motion and it is beginning to take place. Jesus is not the Messiah that Judas was hoping for. And Judas loved the things of this world more than he loved Jesus. Therefore, the devil put it into the heart of Judas to betray him. And as we saw in verse one, and as we'll see in verse 11 in a minute, Jesus is aware of this. He knew that his death was coming. And down in verse 11, he knew that Judas was going to betray him. So Jesus is not in the dark when it comes to knowing about Judas's plan to betray him. That's going to be really important for us as we progress through this chapter. And we're going to see that more importance of that as we work our way through this in a minute. So put that in your back pocket. But it seems like in these first three verses, John wants us to know that Jesus possesses a type of knowledge that none of us have. This is a divine knowledge. He knows what is about to happen. I don't even know what I'm going to eat for lunch today, let alone what's going to happen tomorrow and in the future. But Jesus knows specifically. He has this divine knowledge. And not only does He know about what the details of His death, but He also knows about His divine nature. He knows that the Father... Uh, knowing that the Father had given him all things. He knows that he had come from God, and he knows that he's going back to God. Jesus is fully aware of who he is as God's Son, and he knew exactly the power and authority and majesty that he possessed. And he's aware of his origin, where he came from, and where he's going away to. So with knowing these two things for us as readers, knowing the plan of Judas that he is about to betray him, and knowing Jesus' divine power and authority, John then begins to describe the act of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. And as his death is on the horizon, it is the all-knowing, all-powerful Lord over all who rose up from supper and laid aside his outer garment, as we're going to see, and began to wash his disciples' feet. Let's read verses 4 through 5. So he rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So, if you're a, a Bible marker, uh, take your pen and underline "He laid aside his outer garments," and then just jot out a note next to that saying Philippians 2. It's going to be important for us as we work our way through this. So. We're going to go back to that in a minute, but we're going to see an interesting parallel there. But what we see here is truly remarkable, right? This is what John wants us to see is that this is not ordinary, what Jesus is doing here. Several commentaries pointed out here that the laying aside of the outer garment was an intentional effort of Jesus to show that he's taking on the form of a servant or a slave. And so we should therefore find ourselves surprised or shocked or amazed by what Jesus is doing here. As all of this is beginning to unfold, the jaws of Jesus' disciples should be dropping lower and lower. What Jesus is doing here is unbelievably humble. And keep in mind, too, that Michael Jordan was born many years after this. So none of Jesus' disciples had on a brand new fresh pair of 11s backed, uh, paired with a fresh, clean pair of socks where the, there was a pleasant aroma coming from the feet of Jesus' disciples. Many of the disciples would have worn sandals during this time, something close to the, to the hideous shoes called shakos. And I, I feel like I can say that because I, my wife has a pair of those, and I tell her consistently that they're very ugly shoes. But you can imagine that these were some pretty dirty feet, right? I'm building a deck in my backyard, and so I'm going outside constantly to work on that, and it's muddy, it's dirty, and oftentimes I'll just go out there barefooted. And when I come back in, I have filthy feet. And so the washing of feet during this time was an important practice, and it still is actually today, surprisingly. But in fact, it was very hospitable during this time to provide a bucket of water for guests to enter into our homes. But with that being said, it was unheard of for people of prominence to do the washing of the guest's feet. In fact, one commentary pointed out that the most demeaning task performed by a household servant or slave involved anything with the master's feet. So the washing of feet, the carrying of sandals, the unfastening of the thongs of a sandal, all of those things were shameful practices that were reserved for the lowest of low people. In fact, if you remember back to John chapter one, John the Baptist said that he was unworthy to untie Jesus's sandals. So John the Baptist was saying that Jesus is so astonishingly high and worthy of praise that he was unworthy to do something that was beneath Jewish slaves or servants at the time. But now, fast forward to John chapter 13, the one that John the Baptist was speaking about has now removed his outer garment and has begun to get on his hands and knees and wash his disciples' feet. Jesus is beginning to do such a demeaning action That is only reserved for the lowest of lows. And John told us at the start of his gospel that the creator of all things has now become flesh and dwelt among us. In the beginning, before all things were created, was the Word. And the Word was with God. The Word was God. In Him was all things that were made. Fast forward down, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the creator of all things is Jesus. Dwelling among men. So, why in the world would a mighty and majestic God lower himself so low here? Why is the one who possesses power over life and death taking on the role of a servant and dealing with his followers' feet? Last chapter, if you remember in John chapter 12, we saw Mary buy this or have this really expensive ointment and begin to wash Jesus' feet with her hair. Nobody bats an eye except Judas at this action. And nobody bats an eye at this because Jesus is worthy of that type of service. Jesus is worthy of worship, praise, and adoration and service. He deserves to be sitting in a a really comfy chair with a servant on one side fanning him with with a big old leaf, and you got another servant on this side feeding him grapes. That's what the type of worship and service he's worthy of. But what we see him doing here is reaching for the lowest position available to him. We literally do not have the words to describe the magnitude of what Jesus is doing here. And so I told you to flip or to jot down in your notes, Philippians two, turn over there really quick and we'll begin to see what Jesus is trying to show us here. In Philippians chapter two, Verse verse 6, we'll read verse 5 to to segue us into verse 6. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 says this, "...have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form." He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So, what we see here is that the one who was in the form of God, the one who possesses power over life and death, the one who was with the Father and who is God, the one who possesses a divine knowledge, emptied himself, has taken off his outer garment, and has become a servant, tied a towel around his waist and began to wash his disciples' feet. He has humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross. So making the connection between Philippians 2 and John 13 here, what we see in John 13 is the action of selflessly becoming a servant and washing his disciples' feet was to be a foreshadow, a picture of something greater, a picture of Jesus's death on the cross that was soon to come. And we, as we are going to see, and what we're ultimately going to begin to do is see this played out more the more we continue to read this passage. Jesus's actions here are intended to point us to something far greater. Let's continue to read, reading verses 6 through 11. The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew, there's that word again, who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. And so as we see by Peter's response here, this selfless act was mind-boggling for his disciples during this time. Look at this brief, let's kind of unpack this exchange between Jesus and Peter. Peter is, is looking at what Jesus is doing. And he's like, hold up, no. Like, Lord, do you wash my feet? Peter, Peter is the, the epitome of hashtag no filter, right? If, if Peter had an Instagram account, his account would be nothing but sunsets with the hashtag no filter. He says what everybody else is thinking But when he says it, you always realize, okay, maybe we shouldn't have said that. But um, here he he says, Lord, do do, do you wash my feet? And so again, we see this idea of people in authority, so masters, teachers, and lords, do not wash their servants' or followers' feet. And so Peter is astonished here. To Peter, both Jesus' title and his actions aren't lining up. And this is, so he's saying, this is not how things work. You are my Lord, so therefore I should wash your feet, not vice versa. But Jesus responds by saying, what I'm doing, you don't understand, but afterwards you you will understand. And so Jesus, just like he's done all throughout this gospel, is using the physical to teach something greater, uh, the spiritual. He's saying that his actions here are symbolic of something greater, and so in the same way that it's countercultural, cultural for someone in authority to stoop down and wash his followers' feet, so much more is it countercultural for the all-powerful God to stoop down and wash sinners free from sin through His death on the cross. Jesus here is undoubtedly speaking to the cross. But unaware of this, at this moment, Peter says, you shall never wash my feet. And so Peter can understand, again, the idea of one of the disciples washing Jesus' feet, but he can't fathom Jesus washing theirs at this moment. It was outlandish for Mary. It wasn't outlandish for Mary to to wash Jesus' feet. With oil. That makes sense. Jesus is worthy of that type of worship. But Jesus washing their feet was not even in the realm of possibilities. Therefore, he says, Listen, I I can't let you do such a demoralizing service to me. You are the Son of God. You will never wash my feet. And I think there's both humility and pride wrapped up in this statement. There's humility in that he at least acknowledges his depravity and the loftiness of Jesus, but there's also pride in the fact that he's now ironically barking out orders to his Lord, to the Son of God, the one he should be submitting to. But Jesus responds in verse 6 um, that, that afterwards he'll understand, or verse 7, and, and then he says in verse 8, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And so to have a share means to to have an inheritance. So do you think that Jesus is saying that, that we have to have clean feet in order to have an internal inheritance? No, that's crazy. Again, Jesus is saying that the physical act of washing His disciples' feet... It serves as an illustration or, an, or a parable in order to communicate a greater spiritual truth. And that truth is this, is that unless Jesus washes away our sins, we can have no part with Him. The Creator must become a servant and die on the cross in order for our sins to be washed away. In order for our relationship with God to be restored, we must first be cleansed by Jesus now, whether Peter fully understand, understood the full ramifications of this or not, we, he certainly understood that the washing was linked to being with Jesus here. And because of that, he responds, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And so what a change of tone we see. The, the pendulum has swung in the opposite direction. At one point, Peter doesn't want Jesus touching his feet And now he doesn't just want his hands washed or his feet washed. He wants his hands and his head to be washed. But then look at the response of Jesus in verses 10 through 11. Jesus says, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said not all of you are clean. So again, physical reality, communicating something greater, a spiritual truth. And so if you've been cleansed, then you don't need to be washed. If you've taken a shower, then there's no reason to go back and take a bath. And so in the same way, if you've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus through faith, then you are clean. But Jesus is saying that not everyone has experienced this cleansing. Not everyone has trusted Jesus. In fact, as we saw in verse two, there's one amongst this group who's prepared to betray Jesus, Judas. Now, what's remarkable is when we begin to compare verse 2 with verse 5 with verse 11. In verse 2, we're able to see the devil is put into the heart of Judas, the plan to betray Jesus. In verse 11, we see that Jesus knows who it is that's going to betray him. Yet despite knowing this, in verse 5, we see that Jesus chose to wash his disciples' feet, Judas included. So what a picture of grace and love this is. Jesus humbly serves his betrayer. In fact, none of his disciples, when you begin to look at their lives, none of their disciples deserve this type of love and service. Jesus humbly served those who would deny him three times. He humbly served those who scatter on the day of his death. He doesn't serve those who are worthy of service. He serves the unworthy. And so let's continue to read and then begin to draw some application from this this second paragraph. Looking at verses 12 through 17. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, and that you should do as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So he's saying, listen, your astonishment is accurate. You can call me teacher and you should, you call me Lord and you should, both of those things are true. But the fact that I am your teacher and the fact that I am your Lord is not a valid reason for a lack of service. You shouldn't look to the fact that I am your Lord and say that you shouldn't do this type of service. Rather, what you should do is look to the fact that I am your Lord and begin to say, oh, okay, well, I should do that too. And so may we not be quick to scrutinize, judge, and question the way that Jesus does things in His Word. Rather, may we be quick to submit, follow, and imitate the way Jesus, our Lord, does things. If Jesus has served His disciples, then His disciples should serve others. In the same way that Jesus washed His disciples' feet, we ought to wash one another's feet and that word one another is really important and we'll get to that to a minute but now we're beginning to practically see what this gospel mentality looks like if a life it is a life marked with self-sacrificing service now what's pretty remarkable is that what we see in Matthew 20 is that during this same meal the disciples are arguing over who will be greatest in the kingdom of God. So it's the disciples who are jockeying for a high position of prominence that Jesus begins to turn everything upside down for by by washing their feet. He's beginning to show them that the kingdom of God is not where we can seek selfish gain. Rather, it's one where we serve others humbly. If Jesus washed their feet, Then they are to wash each other's feet. And those words, each other's feet, in verse 14, are really important here. And they're really important because they carry out two implications. There's first the implication that you should serve, there's the expectation that we should serve one another. We should serve those in the life of our church, we should serve others. But there's also the second implication that, that you should be served. One of those we talk about a lot, and the other we don't discuss very much. And so my fear is that there's a sense of shame and guilt that comes from being vulnerable enough to say, hey, I need help. But in order for there to be this type of culture in our church, we have to humble ourselves. We have to humble ourselves enough to serve others and be willing to serve others. But we also have to humble ourselves enough to be willing to say, hey, I need help. I need you to help serve me. And so some of us are so prideful and self-centered that the thought of serving others never crosses our mind. While others of us would rather starve to death than have someone else serve us and feed us. Both are an issue of pride that we need to put to death. And so, listen to me this is a difficult season to walk through. Some of us have lost jobs, some of us have lost hours at work, some of us are working more hours. Some of us are trying to figure out how to work from home while also being a teacher to our kids. This is a difficult season for many of us to navigate. And it's an undoubtedly a season where needs will arise within the church. And so the question is, are we going to let those needs or make those needs known to others? We must be willing and eager to love and serve others. And we must be willing to be loved, and served by others. And so maybe you feel like you're on an island right now. You don't know who to reach out to or who to call, but you're struggling. And maybe you feel uncomfortable broadcasting your needs. I want you to know that you can shoot us an email, shoot our church email an email. That email is hccmobile.org at gmail.com. Again, that's hccmobile.org at gmail.com. Let the church wash your feet during this time. let us serve you. We want to do that so there's there's two sides of this a, a willingness to serve and then a willingness to be served. Jesus also says in verse seventeen that if if you do these things, blessed are you if you do them so there there, there should be an eagerness to carry this out an eagerness to serve. now does that mean that that blessing will be a a life of prosperity? No. A few days after saying this, Jesus literally is in a tomb, dead. Um, But not for long, because we know that He rose from the dead. But there's a sweet sense of joy that comes from a life of imitating your Savior. There is a blessing that comes from serving others. So this week, evaluate your life and ask the question, how can you better serve those around you? And chances are there are people in your life that you cringe at the thought of serving. But one thing Jesus demonstrates here in these verses is that we don't simply serve the deserving. Sometimes we have people in our lives who don't deserve to be served. Some of you have been quarantined one too many days with your family and you're about to lose your mind. Some of you have family members or employees or bosses who drive you up the wall. Your left eye twitches just thinking about them. But we must remember that if Jesus washed the feet of his betrayer, then we can wash the feet of the undeserving as well. We can serve them well by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so if we're going to follow Jesus's example here, then we must not reserve service for only the deserving. We must be just as eager to serve those who have wronged us as we are those who haven't. And this is hard because our natural inclination is to avoid those who have wronged us. And so you may be saying, listen, Karen has hurt me so bad. I can't even make eye contact with this lady without getting upset, without having this this emotional encounter. She has hurt me so bad. Trust me, I know that feeling. But do you know who knows that feeling more than I do? Jesus does. Jesus literally sat across the table from the one who was about to betray him, and he knew about it. And when I say betray, I don't mean that Judas was about to go and say some mean and hurtful things about Jesus behind Jesus's back. I mean that he's about to go and tell and lead the authorities to Jesus so that they might crucify him. Yet, what does Jesus do to Judas? Does he avoid him? No, he serves him. And so being hurt by someone is not an excuse to avoid service. So when conflict arises, please don't run. Please don't avoid. Please humbly serve one another. Wash one another's feet. We don't serve in order to receive praise. We don't serve in order to receive recognition. We serve joyfully out of obedience to Jesus. You serve in order to glorify Him. Again, being hurt by someone is not an excuse to avoid service. But also, we don't serve in order to receive praise or recognition, nor do we serve in order to be served. And this is one of the hardest things to learn in marriage and just in relationships in general. You learn in marriage, you learn what one another's love language is. And then you begin to think, okay, if I speak their love language, then my spouse will begin to speak my love language in return. And when or or if I serve this person, then maybe they will serve me in return. But it's when that we don't receive service in return to our service given that we become frustrated and then we begin to to clam up and withhold service to others. It's when our service gonna, goes unnoticed or un, unappreciated that we grow frustrated and begin to withhold our service. You feel like no one has noticed or you feel like no one cares. But Unacknowledged feet washing is not an excuse to throw in the towel and dump out the water and withhold that type of service. The the selfless service of Jesus made a profound impact of Jesus' disciples, except one. Judas, following the washing of his feet, still decided to go and betray Jesus. So what does that tell us? It tells us that sometimes our service goes unappreciated. We don't serve in order to be served, and we don't serve in order to be recognized. We serve out of worship and obedience to Jesus. And so my prayer is that we will be a church that serves well. And in order for this type of culture to be created within the church, we have to not only learn to give selflessly, but we also have to learn how to receive humbly. And The kingdom of God is where we humbly serve one another well laying down our lives for the well-being of one another but here's the deal the creator of all things the one that paul says all things were created by through and for, he emptied himself and became a servant so jesus isn't saying go and serve while he sits in his chair in heaven and rules over us watching from afar No, Jesus, the King of kings, the ruler of rulers, the greatest of all greats, came not to be served, but to serve and to lay his life down for the church. He is an example of the service that we are called to. So may we, may you and may I be eager to serve well, just like our Savior Jesus has served well by laying his life down on the cross. Church, I love you. I cannot wait to see you again. And I'm praying that the Holy Spirit will convict you where you need to be convicted, encourage you where you need to be encouraged, and that we will be a people who serve well. Love you guys.